Welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing our Keep the Fires Burning series today, a study of the minor characters of the Bible. But before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know a little bit about the ministry here that is going on at Evidence for Faith. If you've been with us for a while, you know that Evidence for Faith is much more than just this podcast. Uh, we publish all of our resources for free online. We do a lot of free speaking events. Uh, basically, anyone who wants to host us, you can have us. We're free, <laughs> or I should say almost free. Um, we also do specialty trips, and we sometimes have scholarships available for those uh, so that um, anyone can come and um, experience God in a different context, whether that's through archaeology, history, or science. Um, and the reason we're able to do this and be so cheap, um, kind of in an age where it seems like all the prices are going up, is because we are 100% donor-supported. Every donation that comes into Evidence for Faith goes back to covering our operational expenses, paying salaries so we can have talented people here doing this full-time, or it goes back into uh, scholarships or um, help subsidizing uh, traveling or lodging for us to go to places that may not be as financially blessed to have a speaker or be able to pay for a speaker. Uh, we're doing this as missionaries. We are looking for people to whether you want to give a one-time gift or have an ongoing donation monthly or quarterly, however you'd like to fit that in your financial planning, uh, we are looking for donors. So uh, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four faith.org slash give, or you can scroll down and the top link in the description will be the link to our donation page, which will give you instructions on how you can give online. Or if you want to give through the mail, through a check, you can also do that as well. So with that, I'm going to let Michael take it away today with Keep the Fires Burning, Jadon, the Prophet of God. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. Again, I'm thanking you for joining me today. As we continue in our series on Keep the Fires Burning, these are minor Bible characters that teach us major lessons. So if you're searching for a way to, to walk closer with God, these are some suggestions that I'm making for you as we're doing this uh, series and using these little minor characters that just in some cases seemingly just appear there and um, without a whole lot going on in their lives, but boy, what they can teach us when we study the Word of God carefully. And in doing so, when you study the Word of God, always ask basically, you know, like, look for the who, what, when, where, why, and hows of a of a passage, of a verse, of a, of a paragraph as you go through it, and just pray for the Holy Spirit to, to show you things. Well, in this case here, we're going to be talking about, this one today is entitled, Jadon, the Man of God. Now, now everybody's wondering, who in the world is Jadon? I don't even ever recall that name in the Bible. Well, to be totally honest, it's not in the Bible. Um, he's just called a prophet of God in the Bible. But if you go to the works of Josephus, Josephus has the story in there also and actually tells us the name of the person. Now, whether Jadon is actually his name or not, we don't know. It's just, we've got to call him something instead of just calling him a prophet of God, because uh, there's two prophets of God in this story. But um, we're going to, we need to have a name to him just to, to make it easy. So I'm just taking the Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, um, and what he says his name was, and we'll just use it. Whether it's correct or not, doesn't really matter. Um, just, we're going to use it just for an identifying character. But um, we're going to call it Jadon, the man of God. And the whole point of this lesson today is studying what is truth? 
what is truth? And the story is going to be taking place in 1 Kings chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to your Bibles, follow along with me. Um, today, I'm using a lot of um, the Bible passages will come from a, a different translation that I normally use, um, though I will still use it at times in this lesson and, and some other Bible translations. But I want to take this one out of God's Word translation. Uh, it's a very good translation. It's... Um, gives you a, it's a very readable translation and it follows pretty closely like the um, word for word in a lot of aspects but it, it makes it more understandable and that's why i'm choosing to use this this translation today if you want to use the niv or the nlt or uh, the net bible i mean you can use any really good translation but let's begin with our story of jadon the man of god to begin with, I want to tell you a story. I heard a story that really impacted me. Um, it seems that a young man fell in love with a woman about his age. They both truly loved each other and wanted to get married, but neither had a job or money. He loved to farm and went to a wealthy man to ask him if he could rent a couple of acres of his farm to try and make some money. The wealthy man agreed, and the man soon had enough money to get married. Now, God blessed them so much that they were eventually able to purchase the land that they were farming from this wealthy farmer. In short time, they had earned enough money to even buy more land. And God blessed them tremendously with bumper crops. He was a great farmer. They built a house on the land then, and they decided it was about time to, to have kids and uh, have kids added to their family, to raise a family. In time, they had two lovely small children. I mean, this couple, this family, seemed to be extremely blessed, and their home was a very, very happy home. But we live in a sinful world, a fallen world. One dark, rainy night, when the husband and wife were going out to dinner, they were involved in an accident in which both of them died instantly. Now, the children were safe at home when it happened with a babysitter. But now, with their parents gone, who would care for them? Both the husband and the wife had no other siblings. Both sets of parents were dead, too. There was only one elderly cousin <clears throat> excuse me, who was found and told the children that they would live with her and, and help her. As I said, she was elderly. But it was soon discovered that neither the husband nor the wife had any insurance or even a will, and there was no money to be had. Thus enter the court of the state, the state that they lived in, became involved, and in by a strange law to some people, declared that the property belonged to the state since both the husband and wife had died with no will. Thus then, the state held a public auction. Um, was soon conducted just afterwards. Strangers came and bought up everything, including the land, the house, and I mean, they bought up everything. Only the children were left. The children were then placed, not with the elderly cousin, the children, by law, were placed in the care of the state. The elderly cousin received nothing. The children received nothing. The state became the beneficiary of everything according to the law. Now, I want to ask you a question to think about. A couple of questions, actually. Do you remember what the Eighth Commandment is? 
Okay, it, it reads, you shall not steal. Pretty simple. Okay, <clears throat> here's my question. Excuse me, but here's my question. Did the state, did the state, the state government, steal from the family? Just interesting question. Did they steal from the family? I mean, it was conducted by the law, but even so, was that stealing? I'm, I'm just asking a question. Obviously, the state government passed a law allowing for the state to become the beneficiary in cases like these. But do you think it's right? The children got nothing. Do you think this is right? Do you think it's legal? Or because it was the government doing it, let's put it a different way. Is it ethical? Well, this reminds me of a very famous Bible story involving the evil king Ahab and a man named Naboth. Uh, I'm just going to read this uh, for you. This is out of the God's Word translation. Um, see if you can see the similarities between that story and what we see in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, we read, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near to my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down in his bed, turned his face, and would eat no food. <laughs> but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Nebath, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern? Israel, arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to him, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people. Two worthless men came in, sat opposite him, the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people there, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you money for. Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and take possession of it. Now, 
that's the story straight out of the scriptures here. And I've been to Jezreel um, on, on tours to Israel. It's, there's not a lot of digging going on on this tell uh, overlooking the Jezreel Valley, but there is evidence that they have possibly found a, um, they have found a large, very, very large uh, wine press um, down just um, at the, the bottom of the tell. And some archaeologists are, and scholars are thinking this is maybe Naboth's vineyard um, and his wine press. But we don't know um, at this point. It's still being dug and studied and things. But a lot of people know this Bible story, and it's frequently used for teaching how evil Ahab and Jezebel were. I mean, these were two people that were very, very evil. And it's, it is evidence showing that Ahab and Jezebel stole the land. But did they? Did they really steal the land? Now, the story I shared with you about the farmers is very similar. The government set up laws to establish who was the beneficiary. Did you note that Jezebel did the same thing? She followed the protocols of the day, wrote letters, had the, the laws legally passed, sealed by the king. Note in verse 8, it says, She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. I hate to admit it, but she did follow, actually, the law. I mean, she's queen. She's making laws, but she wrote letters. I mean, she's following the laws. But, I mean, yeah, what she did was wrong. She murdered a person, but in a way, she's following the law in doing it. So let's return to the question. Is what happened to the farmers in the beginning of the story? Was it right or was it breaking the law? You know, here are some other questions. Is the government capable of declaring what is truth? I mean, in Jezebel's case, she was declaring what is truth. If a government writes laws contrary to the laws of God found in his word, is it ethical? Hmm. If the government makes up laws that are contrary to God, is that ethical? Does the word of God have any influence, any emphasis, any power? or prominence today in lawmaking? Or has the Word of God needed to be changed due to cultural changes over time? Now, that story is a tough one for some people who might believe that God's Word is not absolute truth, or that it might be voided due to cultural differences in time. But I strongly believe that the same God who created the world is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's interesting when looking at the founding of the United States that our founding fathers cited 27 biblical violations when the Declaration of Independence was penned. Even James Madison, the father of the U.S. Constitution, included many biblical principles when writing that document. But today, some say that our Constitution is no longer binding. They say that it needs to be rewritten. But well, here I digress. This is not what I want to get into today. But this is a discussion, and this is a very popular discussion going on, but let's get back to our lesson. Let's examine the character God places, uh, the character that God placed in his word um, that illustrates this point that laws can be wrong, because that's what I'm basically saying. Even if signed by a king, a law can be wrong. That's what we're seeing here. That's, in my opinion, that's what is going on here. The man referred to that we're going to be talking about, he's called in Scripture a man of God from Judah. I mean, like, like I say, that's why we're going to take what the ancient historian Josephus uh, does and gives us a name, 
and his name was, according to Josephus, Jadon. So we're going to use Jadon. Now, whether that's his name, like I say, that's not the issue here. Don't send me letters and stuff saying, um, or comments saying, you shouldn't use that name because it's not found in the Bible. We're just using a name. Um, we're just simply going to refer to this prophet from Judah as Jadon to simplify telling the story. Since the story is um, not a well-known Bible story to many people, let's read it and learn about who this character, uh, this Jadon, this man of God from Judah, who he is. So, 1 Kings chapter 13. We're going to read most of this chapter. And again, I'm out of the God's Word translation. Uh, because it's so long, I want to make it very easy to understand. So we're going to use this one. And it reads, starting in verse 1, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar will be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. So, For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day at Bethel, and also told, them, uh, told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And the son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went up after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go within with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, 
I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in the house and drank water. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten the bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, the men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, the lion standing by the body. And they came to it and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the, the prophet who had brought him back from the way, uh, the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor tore the donkey. The prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar at Bethel and against the, all the houses of the high places that are on the, the cities in Samaria shall surely come to pass. Wow. Yeah, it's a long passage to read, but I wanted to make sure everybody understood the whole story and had heard the story. So now we can get into this. What's this talking about? Well, let you. we need to go back a little bit further just to set the scene so you'll understand what's going on. You see, Israel, uh, the Israel that David had built up into a massive, um, large kingdom, um, had separated during the beginning of the reign of his grandson, Rehoboam. Uh, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to David's lineage but the ten northern tribes had disassociated themselves and formed a new Israel with Jeroboam as their king. Now, he is not a good king. In the town of Bethel, he constructed a golden calf idol to be a representation of God, uh, uh, Yeva, Yahweh, if you will. That's who he made the calf, a golden calf to be. Thus, this is making a grave sin, and he's leading the people into this idol worship. But just not idol worship with his calf, he was combining it with Baal, the god of the Canaanites, and Asherah, the immoral gods of the Phoenicians, making it all together in one religion is what he was doing. I mean, this, <laughs> this is not a wise thing to do. Anyway, 
He's leading his people into sin. Now, Jeroboam chose to continue the festivals and the holidays described by Moses in the Torah, but he chose his own people to be priests and prophets, contrary to God's law, which states that priests must come from the tribe of Levi. Um, they have to be descendants of Aaron. Jeroboam was really leading the new Israel into an evil and sinful direction. But God sent a prophet from Judah to give him an ultimatum. And Josephus, of course, calls him Jadon. Now, Jadon appears at the scene of the festival where Jeroboam has just dedicated this new golden calf idol on a brand new altar. And by the way, this place is still there to this day. When I take tours um, to Israel, he built two of these. He built one up in Tel Dan and one in Bethel. The one in Tel Dan is still there where a golden calf, he placed one of those up there too. Still there, and we take people on tours there. So um, Jadon approaches Jeroboam and tells him God's word. Looking back at our passage, the first three verses, a man of God from Judah had come from come to Bethel. When he arrived, Jeroboam was standing at the altar to offer a sacrifice. By a command of the Lord, this man condemned the altar. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. There shall be born a son, a son born in David's family line. His name will be Josiah. Here on you, Josiah will sacrifice the priests from illegal worship sites who offer sacrifices on you. Human bones will be burned on you. That the day that the Lord, uh, the day the man of God gave them a miraculous sign saying, the sign of the Lord will give you, you will see the altar torn apart and the ashes poured out on the ground. So that's what we have here. And that's where this is now picking up. Jadon basically has called out the king, Jeroboam, for his sin in front of all the subject. I mean, how embarrassing, right? Now, just think about this. For this man to come out, by himself, in front of all the people, during a ceremonial dedication process, that takes guts. And to prove what he is saying actually comes from God himself and not just his own feelings, he states that a miracle would show it to be true. Not only that, but he is foretelling of a future king named Josiah who would defile this altar, which this all did happen later on. Scholars believe that Jeroboam built this altar somewhere around 930 B.C. King Josiah um, lived around 600 B.C. So Jadon foretold an event and even names the person who's going to do it over 200 years before it ever happened. But look at how Jeroboam reacts. Verses 4 and 5, when King Jeroboam heard the man of God condemning the altar in Bethel, he pointed to the man across the altar. Arrest him, he said. But the arm that he used to point to the man was paralyzed so that he couldn't pull it back. The altar was torn apart and the ashes from the altar were poured out on the ground. This was the miraculous sign the man of God performed at the Lord's command. Now, let's examine this passage right here. Um, this verse 4 from a word-for-word -word translation. I'm going to take this out of the New American Standard, and let's read what it says here, because it's an interesting thing. What happens to Jeroboam's arm? So, reading out of the New American Standard, we read, Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. 
So what happened to his arm and his hand? Well, the Hebrew word used to describe, if you go back to the interlinear Bible um, and look for the Hebrew word here, it's the word yabesh. And actually, the meaning of yabesh is to literally wither. It's like a, a stream or a river drying up. Um, so it's still somewhat of a mystery as to what actual—I mean, something terrible has happened. But what exactly it did, it appears that his arm has died, is what it seems to be. Now, taking out of the—I'm going to quote for you out of the Bible commentary—or, I'm sorry, the Bible background commentary as to what that interpretation is on this. It reads, quote, most interpreters have identified this condition as resulting from the source of hemorrhage or clot, but these conditions do not explain why the arm remained extended. The latter has been described as a condition today termed cataplexy. Uh, that's a shock to the nervous system that causes muscle rigidity. What we don't know, I mean, that's an interpretation of it. We just know something terrible, frightening, and it appears whatever happened to his arm, it like withered, it dried, whatever, it became like dead. It it was unusable, unusable to be used. Um, can you imagine being there and watching this happen? You have this prophet of God yelling out at the, um, the king. The king yells back at him and points his finger to him, and all of a sudden his arm just, something happens, and everybody, I mean, just goes aghast. Oh, and they're all watching this to see whatever happened to his arm like that. Let me pause for a moment to show you something very interesting, considering miracles. Miracles do happen by God's power. Okay, if one examines miracles in the Bible, I years ago I did a Bible study just on the miracles in the Bible, and I noticed something very interesting, that when you see a miracle happening in the Bible, in almost every single circumstance, it's being used as some type of proof that God has truly spoken spoken through a person, or that his law is real, that God's word is true. It's to um, assure that this message is from God. That's why miracles apparently happen. They're, they're not done for entertainment. They're to show proof that God's word is true. I mean, if you sit and study miracles, almost any miracle you're going to find in the Bible, you're going to be able to trace it back to that. It's really interesting. So this miracle uh, occurred to prove that the word of God was coming from Jadon. Now, let's get back. This foretold of doom to Jeroboam's new religion, and his changing God's laws to fit his own agenda was a major sin in God's eyes. Jeroboam realized this at once. I think anybody would realize this, considering what God did through this prophet to his arm. It impacted Jeroboam enough for him to call out to the prophet for help. Instead of having him killed, now he's pleading for him for help. Uh, verse 6, then the king asked the man of God, please make an appeal to the Lord your God and pray for me so that I can use my arm again. So the man of God made an appeal to the Lord, and the king was able to use his arm again as he had earlier. Now, don't you find it amazing that God would so easily heal him despite his sin? Notice, too, that Jeroboam now recognized that Jadon is a true man of God. This is what it took. That, wow, this guy really is speaking the Word of God, unlike those other prophets that he has formed on his own and just prophets to be out of his own, um, his own thinking. Uh, because of this experience, Jeroboam now tries to get the true prophet of God, Jadon, to stay with him. Now, most Bible scholars agree that Jeroboam was not repentant on this action of trying to establish 
a new religion in Israel. Most feel that he was attempting to bribe Jadon to gain his favor. Why do they say that? And I, I tend to agree with this. Uh, just look at the future events of what keeps Jeroboam keeps doing. It, he does not change his way. He does not repent. Um, he asks, you know, uh, for help. He's sorry for what he said, but being uh, asking for forgiveness or telling someone you're sorry is not the same thing as repenting. Repenting means to change your way, change your thinking, change the way you live. Um, that was Jesus's message to us. Um, and that's what we are called today to do is to repent. So Jeroboam, no, it's he's get, probably got some trick up his sleeve. Jadon responds that in the correct way. He was not allowed to eat or drink anything on this journey, nor even to stay in Israel, but to go home a different route as soon as possible. Why? This statement, uh, this was a statement saying that Israel was polluted with sin, and its new religion is contaminated. Picking up the story in verse 7 through 10, the king told the man of God, Come home with me, have something to eat and drink, and I'll give you a gift. The man of God told the king, Even if you gave me half your palace, I would never go with you to eat or drink there. When the Lord spoke to me, he commanded me not to eat or to drink or to go back on the same road. So the man of God left on another road and didn't go back on the road to be taken to Bethel. You see, Jadon had heard God speak. He had heard his word. It was true to him. He knew God does not lie, that God is truth. So he would not alter it in any way to fit his own desires or needs. I mean, the guy must have been hungry after the journey, maybe thirsty if it's hot and stuff. But now we get to the next part of this story, which we'll just call the deception. After refusing King Jeroboam's offer, he sets off for home thinking his mission is accomplished. But something else was happening in Bethel. Now remember, this is all taking place in the same village, picking up in verse 11 through 13. An old prophet was living in Bethel. His son told him everything that the man of God did in Bethel that day and the exact words that he had spoken to the king. When they told their father, he said to him, which road did he take? And his son had seen which road the man of God had taken. The old prophets had settled a donkey, and after they'd settled a donkey for him, he got on it. Now, another unnamed prophet, and I'm going to put that in quotations, prophet, now appears on the stage. So we got two prophets, the prophet, the man of God, Jadon, and now this new guy. We don't have any information on him. We don't have any name of him. I can't find anything um, even as a name from ancient sources, but Josephus does give us a little bit in his telling of the story about his character of this unnamed so-called prophet. And Josephus writes, uh, now there was a certain wicked man in that city who was a false prophet whom Jeroboam had in great esteem. Okay, apparently this man was no prophet of the Lord because he was living in Bethel for one thing, and he didn't appear to be doing anything about Jeroboam's new religious reforms. I mean, if he's a true prophet of God, why is he just sitting there in Bethel where Jeroboam is setting all this up? He does nothing, absolutely nothing, about the new religion and new religious reforms that King Jeroboam is, is um, bringing out. Instead, he's a deceiver of the truth. He seeks out Jadon, who is following God's command and is on his way home. But, and Jadon, no doubt, is hungry and he's famished. And we read in um, verses 14 and 15, And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. And the old prophet asked him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, Yes. Come home with me and eat a meal, the old prophet replied. Well, this seems innocent enough. But remember, God's word was for Jadon not to indulge in anything in this polluted kingdom. 
Jadon speaks the truth now from the word of God. Verses 16 17, the man of God said, I am not allowed to go back with you. I'm not allowed to eat or drink with you. When the Lord spoke to me, he told me not to eat or drink or go back on the road I took to get here. Now, the deceiver uses a lie and unwittingly, unwittingly sets a trap for Jadon. Verses 18 and 19, the old prophet said, I get this, I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke the word of the Lord to me. He said, bring him home with you so that he may have something to eat and drink. But the old prophet was lying. The man of God went back with him and ate and drank in his home. Jadon now compromises God's word. He breaks God's law. He knows what he has been told by God. He has no question in his mind. He's reiterated it numerous times. But for some reason, he chooses to believe that God's word does not apply here and now. Did you catch that? He's under the impression and chooses to believe that God's word does not apply in the here and now. Yeah, let that sink in. This is the same problem we see today. Let me just read something from you. I found um, back in 2005, a July issue of Focus on the Family, TrueU.org pamphlet, um, that I would get these in the mail, and also I went through these things. Um, it had a, a, a comment in here that just really struck me, and I wrote this down. Um, here, Let me just quote it from you. Um, this is July of 2005. Truth is relative. It's whatever works for you. Christianity is for the weak-minded. Faith and reason don't mix. Christian intellectual, that's an oxymoron. Now, now this is saying what the people are saying today. Recognize these beliefs? How will young people respond? Statistics show that as many as 50% of people lose their faith in college. Why? Because they have no idea why they believe what they believe. And they have no ability to defend their beliefs. They're taken captive by ideas they aren't prepared for. Sound familiar? Folks, that's why evidence for faith exists. That's why we do this ministry to give people a reason to believe, to help them using history, using science, using the Bible itself, using logic to believe. Even so, people uh, will just turn a blind eye, and people do. They just refuse to believe. The evidence is there. They refuse it. But that's what this ministry is about, and that's why we are trying at Evidence for Faith to get the word out, to give people, particularly young people, but anybody, adults too, because I've had adults on the same thing. They don't know why they believe, what they believe, and the thing is they're easy fodder for uh, Satan as a roaring lion to come around and destroy them. Those seeking to impose or justify their own selfish ambitions often distort truth. Now, what is truth? Well, Pilate asked that same question back in 30 AD to Jesus. The only thing in this universe that is true is God. He is it. He created all the laws of science and all of matter. He spoke, and since he is the ultimate of holiness, he cannot lie. Everything that comes out of his mouth is truth. God is truth. That's why over, what is it, 79 times in the Bible, God is referred to as truth as a proper name. 
God is truth. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. To alter the truth is to ensure God's wrath on you. Look, look how the story plays out now. Verses 20 through 22. 20 through 22. While they were sitting at the table, the Lord spoke his word to the old prophet who had brought the man of God back. The Lord also called to the man of God. He said, this is what the Lord says. You rebelled against the words of the Lord's mouth and didn't obey the command that the Lord gave you. You came back, ate and drank in this place about which he told you, don't eat or drink there. That is why your dead body will not be allowed to be placed in the tomb of your ancestors. Wow, that's pretty powerful condemnation there. God's word, in other words, does not compromise the truth. Jadon obviously must have been hungry, uh, thirsty, probably tired after his journey. We're not told, you know, how far his journey was or whatever. He knew the specific orders from God. He had got it from God himself. He knew it, but he chose to believe that his word did not carry any weight now at this place. He talked himself into distorting the truth. How many today search for a compromised truth? because they don't like what God's truth is. How many today even seek a church or a pastor that preaches false truths and that they pass off as the word of God? Mm -hmm. It's become an epidemic in our country today. I know many people when, who have told me that they stopped going to a certain church, and I asked them why, and they said, I don't like his interpretation of Scripture. It's not modern. It's not following our culture. And they said that they go to this other place now, this other church, or they listen to this pastor because they're more culturally attuned. <sighs> this is sad. But you see, it's not something new. This goes back even to 930 uh, B.C. For Jaden, the consequences were very severe, and we should learn from this. Uh, verses 23 and 24. After the old prophet had something to eat and drink, he saddled a donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. The man of God left. A lion found him as he traveled on the road and killed him. His dead body was thrown on a road. The donkey and the lion were standing by the body. If one tries to figure out why God is so severe with Jadon and not the lying prophet that he got, says he got a message from an angel, we don't know. We're not given all the information here. But the lesson here for, uh, that we can find here is for us, too. Um, that happens here at that period of time, we can learn from this, that God will deal more strictly with those who are in his service than worldly people who are not. Uh, we who are called to serve God will be held more accountable than others. I mean, that's right there. That's something we should be careful of. But let's summarize Jadon's character. What were his strengths and accomplishments? Well, first, he was a man who had the special honor to serve God in Israel. That's quite an honor. Second, he was given God's word to proclaim. Third, he was an instrument used by God through whom he would conduct even miracles. Wow. But Jadon also had his weaknesses, and he made his mistakes. And there's three of these. First, he compromised the truth of God. Second, he did not hold that God's word is unchanging. Mm -hmm. And third, he let his own personal desires supersede God's word. 
he heard a message supposedly from a man who claimed to receive it from an angel and jumped at the chance to believe the lie while knowing deep down exactly what God had told him. Too often, I've had discussions on what truth really is, and even if it exists today. The disturbing thing is that many times people ask, people asking this question of what is truth are young Christians or young adults. Many people, in some cases, even saved by grace, but they get confused by what they're taught in schools or what they're taught in church or what they hear on the news or what they see on the internet or on YouTube. I've had young men who have tried to convince me that the Bible call what the Bible calls sins are not really sins today because the Bible was written to an ancient culture, Israel, and not to a postmodern America. Thus, you can't apply it. Sometimes I've been able to teach them and that these abominations to God, because God doesn't change, are still abominations to him to, to him today. God didn't mellow about sin. Sin is still an unholy article that cannot be in the presence of God. He is a holy God. God is truth. Jesus told us what sin was. Sin doesn't mellow or change with time and culture. There is a truth our God spoke, and it doesn't change with time. I was just finishing speaking at an event on the Bible. And it was about that God's word is true, using archaeological evidence and scientific evidence. A couple of young men came up to me and told me that they did not believe in absolute truth. They said that truth is relative to an individual person. Another said that he believed that there were many forms of truth and that a person can make anything he wants to to be true. I asked him if... (laughs) thought about this, but then I thought carefully, and then I asked him, you guys ever use mouthwash? <laughs> it startled them a bit. So, um, they, well, yeah, like I, I know they were thinking, does, is he telling us that our breath stinks and we need some now? Um, that's not what my point was. So I asked them another question. I said, have you ever used an oil product like WD-40 as a mouthwash? You ever spray that in your mouth? It's a brush in your breath? And they're still confused, and they both said, No, I know they thought I was making a joke. So I asked them what uh, if they thought that if a person uh, was determined to say that WD-40 was a mouthwash, if they kept saying that and saying that their truth, would it harm that person if he used it in that fashion? Now, at this point, they stood there perplexed. It's starting to dawn on what's going on. I continued with saying to a per, uh, that uh, a person said, um, I said to the person, what if they took Tylenol? What if a person says that Tylenol, this analgesic pain reliever, is actually just candy? And that's their truth, that Tylenol is candy. And they can go around telling everybody Tylenol is just candy. What if they ate a whole bottle of this analgesic pain reliever? Would it be the same as really a harmless candy? Do you think their truth would have changed it, insisting that this candy wouldn't harm them? They thought for a bit and then asked, they got my point. And one of them then said, well, if that's the case, because they realized at this point that, yeah, truth, there, there is an absolute truth. So then one of them asked, they said, well, where in the world do we find absolute truth? I picked up my Bible and said, here it is. 
Here it is, because it came from a God of truth. WD-40 can't be used as mouthwash. Tylenol is not the same thing as eating little Smarties candies or some other little candy. It's not the same thing. No matter what your truth is, there is an absolute truth on what these things are. And I hope you learned that. Lord, I thank you for this lesson we've had here today, and I just ask that you bless it, that you would use this to help us in our minds to understand what truth is, that your, your word is truth. You tell us numerous times, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you do not change. Your word is truth. Help us to believe it. Help us to realize, unlike Jaden here, who thought that time and culture can change your truth, it doesn't. Your truth stands because you are an unchanging God. So help us, Lord, and draw us close to you and keep us safe in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope that you've enjoyed this one. Again, we'd love to hear from you. But until we meet again, take care. May God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.